Okay, guys, we are in the second week of a, um, uh, a series we're calling Define the Relationship. Uh, we're looking at what my, the generation behind me um, calls DTR Talks, Defining the Relationship Talks. Now, there's lots. It's kind of fun if you go online and look up how to have a DTR talk. Maybe you're in a relationship with somebody and you need to have a DTR talk. Um, maybe there's been some assumptions about the way the relationship is going to work. Maybe there's been some presumptions about how the relationship is going to work. But you never actually sat down and said, you know, let's make sure we're on the same page with how we're going to go forward here. And so, you know, maybe you need to have that DTR talk with someone in your life. If you do, or you, or you should, you can find there's lots of good questions about what would be good DTR questions to ask. For example, you've been together with somebody, you've been spending a lot of time, you've gone out a lot. One of the questions you might want to kind of settle on is, you know, just the easiest one, is this kind of a friendship thing we have going on here? right, which is my experience with every girl I ever met in high school? Or is this, you know, is there something more to this? Right? Are we more than just friends? Another DTR question might be, you know, maybe you've, you've spent some time together, maybe you've been out a lot. You might, you might want to bring up a, maybe a tougher question, which is, is this relationship in? Is it exclusive? You know, I mean, uh, are, are we seeing other people too? I mean, I know we've gone out a bunch and we've never really had this discussion. It, are you going to go out with other people, or is it just kind of me and you? Is this an exclusive thing we're in, or are we kind of just doing this until it makes you in, but we're, we're open to something better coming along? You know, another DTR classic question might be, where is this relationship going? I mean, let's be honest. I, I, I put some time into this. I've given some of my best years to this, maybe. Um, is this thing just moving towards any level of permanence? Are we going to wind up married? Or is this just kind of a whimsical fancy that we're in? Um, I feel like I need to know. Now, what I love about the scriptures are, when seen through this lens, the Bible is in many ways like one long DTR story from God to his people written over thousands of years by all kinds of different authors, but it's God over and over from creation till its final redemption saying, let me explain to you how the relationship works. Let me define it for you. This is how we're going to go forward. For example, let me answer one of your DTR questions. Here's the deal. You shall have no other gods but me. I don't want to share you with anybody else. I'm a jealous God. I'm jealous for you. I'm jealous over you. This thing we have, this thing I want with you, this with God life, it's an exclusive thing. And just in case you missed it in commandment one, let me kind of lay out maybe commandment two to make sure you're getting this right. I don't want you to have any other idols. I don't want any other men in your life. They, you, you shouldn't create any other things and lift them up. You shouldn't create any other things and bow down to them. In fact, in fact, God says, let me tell you where this is going. Let me answer that DTR question too, where the relationship is headed so you understand. According to the last book in the Bible, all of creation is moving towards a party, a wedding party, a wedding banquet where the church of Christ, where the believers in Jesus are going to meet their bridegroom and they will celebrate at the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see, this relationship is going somewhere. 
And that's what we're working through over these last couple of weeks. How do we define? See, God has defined how he wants to relate to us very clearly. We've misunderstood it. How do we define the relationship with God? Have we incorrectly defined it? And how does God want us to live in this relationship? Now, if you were here last week, you know, in order to do this, we're kind of springboarding off the work of an author named Sky Juthani in a book he has entitled With. He has brilliantly put a lot of these ideas together. This is a big deal for me. I think it's a big deal for our church. If we get these ideas, it helps to define who Jesus is and what he wants to be for us. And as you go through these, as we walk through these um, relational aspects of God, I think what you'll experience, because this is what I've experienced, is that most of the time in my life, I have misdefined, misidentified the way I'm supposed to relate to God. This is such a big deal for me that your kids, starting tonight in youth group, your kids, Steve is going to be teaching your kids DTR Talks with God. This is such a big deal for me and for the church. I've asked most of the small groups, and most of them have said they would do this, to do DTR Talks from now till Christmas. Get in your small groups and work through this material. Because you could come to church on Sunday and hear this, but until you actually get with a couple of people and get honest about how you've related to God, there's probably not going to be a lot of transformation in your life. So if you're not in a small group, you need to let us know, and we'll get you in a small group. we got all kinds of small groups that are up, and they're going through this material, this with material. So what Jethani said is that most of us have related to God in one of four ways that have some truth to it, but it's not fully true, and it leads you off into bad areas of understanding. His overall, his overarching point is that we were created based on the, what the creation story you see in Eden, where God creates man and woman and is with his people, walking in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. That God creates a garden, and he says to them, I want you to come and be part of my redemptive work in this garden. I want you to work with me. In fact, he says, you name the animals. Whatever you name them is what I'll call them. And so God is with his people. But see, it wasn't enough for, 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 for a man and woman to be with God. If you remember the story, they wanted to be like God. They wanted to, to move into a control situation in that relationship and sin comes in and separates us from God. But as we looked last week, if you just trace the scriptures through, Genesis to Revelation, constantly God calling out to his people, I want to be with you, I want to be with you, I want to be with you. In about eight or ten weeks, we're going to celebrate Christmas, right? One of the names for God, or Jesus, is Emmanuel. What, what does that mean? God with us. He's the only God that's ever defined himself in this manner. Most every other God, most every other religion defines the relationship in a different way. In fact, Jethani points out that there's primarily four ways that all of us at one time or another in our lives have tried to relate to God and which leads us to a false understanding of who God is and what he wants of us. Those four ways that he lays out are life under God, life over God, life from God, and life for God. There are elements of truth to each of these postures for relating to God, but they're ultimately God's not, they're not God's greatest desire for how you would walk with him. His greatest desire is that you would walk with God. Briefly, we went through a little bit of them last week. Life under God, right? This is a cause and effect relationship. I'm good, you bless. I'm bad, you punish. We're going to talk about this one today. This is primary for us. We, we oftentimes misunderstand relationship. We think we, we're called to life under God. There's life over God. 
This is God is essentially a watchmaker. He has wound the watch and he has left the scene. He left you an instruction book. You can call from it three or four principles for living and prosperity. And you don't really even need to relate to God. Just follow the principles. Follow these rules. Follow the regulations. Your kids will be fine. You know, you'll have a nice big house and plenty of money. You don't need God. You just need what he taught. Life from God, right? This is the, the prosperity gospel. This is what you, if you watch a lot of late night religious programming, this is the God just wants you to be happy. God just wants you to get a promotion. God just wants you, just wants to bless you. God does want to bless you, but it's often not in the ways that we perceive to be blessing. This is where we develop consumer Christianity, which is I'm only here for what I can get. It's life from God. And there's the final one, which we get tripped up in church all the time, which is God just wants me to serve him, right? I'm going to give my life to God. He just wants me to to be a missionary or a pastor or quit my job, and that's the way I'm going to relate to him because God is kind of a taskmaster, and he really wants me to work for him. What I want to look at this morning is that first one, though, that life under God posture. Why most of us, listen, you're going to, I think you'll feel along the way that this is in you. I know it's in me. This, most of us were steeped in this from our mommies and our daddies. The life under God. We're going to look at why it's so common and where it arose from. Because according to Jethani, he makes a brilliant point in this. He's got some pictures in the book. According to Jethani, you know, the common uh, thing you hear out there is all religions are just leading to the same place. See, that's not true. I mean, that's just the most silly and simplistic thing. You could go study and look at other religions. They're not leading to the same place. I sat with somebody this week, and they were sharing with me that uh, they had gone to see their psychic, and that their psychic had told them they were really at a bad point in their life, they'd had a lot of pain in their life, and their psychic had told them, don't worry, this is your last life. You're not going to be reincarnated again, so you're not going to have to deal with this anymore. Now, That would be funny if the person wasn't in so much pain, that it was actually a a joyful thing to think I was just going to disappear. See, all religions don't lead to the same place. That's not true. What is true, though, is almost all religions are created from the same place. Almost all religions are created from the same place, which is there are forces at work in my life which I have no power and control over. So I need to figure out a way to get these forces and powers to do what I want them to do so I can again, just like Adam and Eve in the garden, gain control over something that appears out of my control. Let's go back in time. There was a time, Jethani would say, where there would be a small community of ancient people. And they'd be living in simple dwellings, living off the land, farming. And their survival would depend on forces far beyond their control. Would the herds that I feed off of, would they stick to their normal migration route this year? Maybe they might not come back. Would the rains come because my crops need to be watered? Would the sun be out because without the sun, my my crops might wither? Would the locusts destroy the crops? Would the fever that seems to be attacking other people's children in town, would the fever spread? And so rather than explaining these forces of nature through science, as later civilizations like ours would, ancient people personified these natural forces and linked them with deities. This is why, and you all learn this, right, the Greek gods and all the rest when we were in school, 
For the ancients, the universe wasn't governed by laws, but by wills, the wills of the God. What do I mean by that? Spring doesn't arrive because the Earth's axis shifts and more sunlight reaches the northern hemisphere. Spring comes because the God of spring willed it to come. Here's the problem, though, with these gods. They're fickle. They're kind of capricious. They're goodwill towards mortals and the sustaining of the natural order. It seems like they want something in order to do what we want them to do. And so over time, this desire to control these forces that were beyond their control seemed to begin to require sacrifices and rituals and obedience in order that they might be able to get God to do what they needed him to do. And out of this need to control this force, this, this, this thing they couldn't understand, man begins to create religions, ways of approaching God, ways of being in relationship with God that will help me control him. It's how I can participate in sustaining and controlling my life. I got to keep the force happy because if I can't keep it happy, the rains might not come. If I can't keep the, the, the herd God happy, well, the herd might run in a different direction. If I can't keep the fever God happy, my kid might die of fever. And so over time, as man struggles with how to keep these forces happy, two things begin to develop. And this is so fascinating. If you really want to spend time on this, go home and you will see it. It develops all over the ancient world in societies on different continents that never heard from each other. It's absolutely fascinating. The first thing that happens is these forces, these gods that, that they begin to personify. There was a sun god and a rain god. There was a moon god. You're not able to have children. Well, don't worry. There's a fertility god. You had to placate those gods, the sun god, the fertility god, so that they might bless you. So in different communities, different areas, they had different gods with different names. And it is assumed that in a different community with a different god and a different name, they wanted different things. You, or you live in Mansfield? You're from Chester? Well, see, the Chester rain god, mm, yeah, he's a tough one. He's a, he's a pretty distant guy. Here's what you need to do. And so it begins to develop around all these rituals and practices in, in the ancient world. What rises up, like, how do I know? I just moved into Mansfield, and it has, it's not raining here in Mansfield. How do I know? How do I get it to rain? How do I get the Mansfield rain god to work? Well, you need the Mansfield priest who tells you how to relate to this God. And so this whole religious class starts to build up where, where you would go and you would find the guy that could tell you how to manipulate this God so you could keep him on your side. And at the center of all of this, at the center of a life under God posture, is essentially a bargain, which is this. How do I do something in order to ensure that he does something? How do I do? What do I need to do in order to get God to do what I want him to do? I'm going to bargain with him. Because uh, these gods, they've got to want something from me. I need to keep them on my side. So man, because he thinks that God thinks like he does. This is one of the biggest issues that we always have, right? Scripture says that God created man in his image. And one of the great sayings of all time is, and man returned the favor. And so in our minds we go, you know what God's like us? He must want something from me. So in order to keep him on my side, I'm going to begin to sacrifice things back to him. So if I had a particularly good year out in the field with my crops, and say I bought in a lot more wheat or corn or whatever they were farming in the day, I, I, boy, man, I bought in three times as much this year as I did last year. 
I better make sure the gods, the, the rain god and the sun god, understands that I really appreciate this because if he doesn't think I appreciate it, he might not bless me next year. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to set aside a portion of this crop and I'm going to give it back to him to make sure he knows I'm thankful, to make sure he understands that I know that this didn't come just because I, was, I, I, I did better in farming. I don't want him to get frustrated or angry or disappointed. I want him to come through for me next time. So I had a good take. I'm going to give some back. Well, how do you offer something back to God? Well, the ancient mindset, again, across the world, was that the gods were up. The rain came from the heavens. The, the sun is in the heavens. The moon is in the heavens. The stars are in the heavens. If I, if I want to give something back to one of these gods to keep him on my side, I guess I'm going to have to sacrifice it up. So they begin to build altars. Piles of rocks elevated off the ground. And they usually, in most, in most civilizations, they would put them on mountaintops. Now, another writer I, I, I read this week, he, he points out a fundamental flaw in this system. This, this altar system. See, with the altar system, if things go really well, and I had a bumper crop this year... I guess I have to give back more than I gave last year because I want these gods to understand I'm, I'm happy. I, I want them to understand, you know, thank you. So I, I need to give more back so they're not offended. So if things go well, I need to give more. But here's the other thing. If things go bad, if the rain doesn't come, if the sun stays behind clouds, well, that must be because the offering wasn't enough. So I need to offer more. Still no rain? I need to offer more. And this is the vicious cycle of the life under God mentality, which is if I've been given a lot, he wants more. And if I haven't gotten enough, he wants more. And at the heart of this, at the heart of this vicious cycle of the, of, of, of the altar, you live with worry. Is somebody somewhere in the heavens angry, disappointed, discouraged that I haven't done enough, that I haven't given enough. If things are good, do they know I appreciate it? And what this life under God was meant to give us was this feeling of certainty and control winds up producing in mankind over the millennia a deep, deep anxiety of worry because they never understood for sure where they stood, where they were with God. I mean, what do you do after you've offered all your possessions and it's still not raining? And your children are hungry. And you've offered your, your chickens and you've offered, offered your lambs and you've offered your bulls and it's still not raining. And it's been six months and it's been nine months and it's been ten months. And, and I, I, God, I've given you everything I can think to give. The rain still haven't come. The sickness still hasn't passed. What am I going to do? And, and you can see it throughout, throughout history. For example, one example is the prophets of Baal in the land of Canaan. They would begin to cut themselves and bleed. And they would, they would drop their own blood on the altar and say, God, I, I want you to understand how serious I am. I've given you all my stuff, and apparently that hasn't been enough. So now I'm going to cut myself, and I want you to see this is how devout I am. This is how serious I am, God. I understand that this is what you want. And it doesn't rain again. And it doesn't rain again. This is fascinating. Across the cultures, across the world, 
Mankind comes to the same conclusion, really interesting. If he's taken all of my crops and he's taken all of my bulls and he's taken all of my lambs and he's taken all of my children and I've cut myself and he's still not happy with me, there's only one thing left that he must want. My children. And life under God led to human sacrifice all around the ancient world. Aztecs, Incas, other peoples in South and Central America practiced child worship. In fact, Darren's going to put up, here's a pic, picture from Monte Alban. This is in southern Mexico, where, the, where there is the altar upon which children were laid. It was the same for the Druids of Europe. The city of Carthage in North Africa contains evidence of child sacrifice related to worship of Baal. Many Roman writers refer to the barbaric act in Carthage. The ancient god Malek was mentioned in several places in the Old Testament. He desired your children be offered him in a special way. They needed to be burned to be purified. So in, in order to keep the god Malek happy, the ancients would burn, literally burn their children for him on their altars. In fact, that story is in the Bible. In Leviticus, God tells the Israelites, do not sacrifice your children to Malek. Yet even the Israelites fall prey to appeasing this, this false god because they live out of a life under God understanding of relationship. This altar system, which is so characteristic of life under God, is such a slippery slope. I keep sacrificing for you, God. I keep giving you more. But at any given moment, I'm not totally sure if I gave you enough. I'm not sure if I've given you enough of myself or my stuff to keep you happy. Do you want more? Maybe I should give more just to make sure because I don't really know where I stand. This is the life under God posture. Most of us were taught this, and what I would tell you is it's actually born into you. Those who follow the rules, who obey the rituals and the demands and keep the gods appeased, to them God provides blessing. And punishment then is reserved for people that are disobedient. Why didn't your, your fields produce as much this season as your neighbor's? Was it just bad luck or bad farming methods? No, not according to life under God. According to the life under God posture, you're less blessed because your sacrifices didn't please God as much as your neighbors. And so, life under God, even right up to now. Let me throw some questions out. Do you know anybody? Do you know, are you aware of anybody that's tr been trying really hard to be good, to keep God pleased so that things might go well for them? Do you know anyone who ever wonders if they've been good enough, done enough stuff so that God is okay with them? Do you know anyone, and listen to me on this, do you know anyone who when something goes wrong in their day, it's a tough day, maybe a bad diagnosis, heck, maybe it's something as similar as misplaced keys, and they wander around the house in a rant and say out loud, what have I ever done to deserve this? You guys know anybody like that? That's life under God. See, I perform for you, and you perform for me. That's the way this works, right, God? A friend of mine, several years ago, was diagnosed with cancer, and it was a bad, um, a bad diagnosis, and, uh, and you know, knew he, he knew he was going to pass from it. And so we, we began to meet um, a bunch of times before he passed, and 
we'd get together and we would talk about Christ and, and, and Jesus and who he was and, and his love. And, and my friend's face would just light up when he started to, to reflect on Jesus and his mercy and his grace. But then at the end, he would always leave trouble. And I would say, what's the problem? Why, 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 why are you down? And, and every time, the conversation would end the same way. I'm not sure I've done enough. I'm just not sure that I've been good enough. Life under God, this posture that we can control God, we can make him do what we want if we do what he wants. See, if we control him, then we don't need to be afraid anymore. But that's not true because here's what happens. The life under God posture never delivers what it promised. It promised to get rid of your fears, but instead it just traps us and enslaves us into this ritual. And old men on their deathbeds are still looking up at the priests and wondering, was it enough? Did I do enough? Was I good enough? There's another fundamental problem with this life under God posture. At its core, it only reinforces the same original sin issue that was in the heart of man back in the garden. Their man was not content to walk with God, to rule with God. Instead, he wanted to be like God and to assume a position of control. And in the irony of ironies, the life under God posture, with all of its sacrifices and rules and laws and behavioral modifications and moral codes, all it really is trying to do is once again exert our dominance over God. I did right, you owe me. It's deep in us. God, I, I give, I don't curse, I don't drink, I don't swear, I go to church, I go on mission trips, I'm a good person. You owe me. You're indebted to me. And see, this is how the ancients saw God 6,000 years ago. And the crazy thing is, as far as we've come with science and discovery and all of the rest, in many ways, it is exactly the same way as we see God today. Jethani gives the best example of this in the book. In your small groups, I, I'm going to ask you, I would love for you to get in your small groups and share your own life experiences and examples of where you found yourself living in a life under God. But Jethani gives just a classic one. On November 28, 2010, the Buffalo Bills are playing the vaunted Pittsburgh Steelers. And, you know, Buffalo, they've been a long-suffering franchise. And, and Pittsburgh, you know, recent Super Bowl winners. And it had been a back-and-forth game. In fact, Buffalo likely would have already won the game, except for the fact that their star-wide receiver, Steve Johnson, had already dropped four passes on the day. He'd already become kind of the goat of the game. But nevertheless... The game went into overtime, and the chance for redemption reared its beautiful head again for Johnson as he streaked wide open towards the end zone and what was going to wind up being the game-winning touchdown. In fact, here's what it looked like. And in overtime, Ryan Fitzpatrick off the play action finds Stevie Johnson it wide open in the back of the end zone. Oh! Drop. His fifth drop of the game. Wide open. Fifth drop. Watch this. Here was his tweet after the game. I praise you 24-7. And this is how you do me? You expect me to learn from this? How? I'll never forget this. Ever. Thanks, though. <laughs> but God, didn't you see me on TV last week? Like, 
I was saying to everybody that I'm blessed and that the reason I caught all the passes was because of you. And how dare you this week come along and knock those passes out of my hand? See, life under God. This is not the deal. I mean, Steve, Steve, he's saying to him, you owe me. I praise you all the time. Steve Johnson puts himself, think about it, he puts himself in a position of authority over God. You owe me. And when we keep teaching our kids this, when we keep teaching our kids that there's a direct correlation between what they do and how they do it and what God is going to provide for them, when it doesn't happen, when it doesn't happen, when they don't get the healthy, the healthy baby, when their husband leaves them, when they lose their job, when it doesn't happen, they walk away from the faith because they never understood what the faith really was. It was meant to be a life with God and they settled for a life under God. Now in Jesus' day, this was the common posture that he would run into on the streets of Jerusalem. It was deeply ingrained, the popular belief that there was a simple formula. We still believe this today. God blessed the righteous and he cursed the unrighteous. If you obey all the commandments, everyone you can find, if you do that, well, you'll avoid disease. If you do that, you'll get rich. You'll find favor with God and man. And the formula works in reverse too. If you don't follow all the commands, if you break some of them, if you slip up any, if you're not good enough, you're gonna suffer. You can see this in a bunch of the stories where people come up to Jesus. One is in John 9. As Jesus passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. Here comes life under God. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it wasn't this man that sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed on him. And Jesus did just that. He displayed the glory and his healing of this man's blindness. But in their view, because he was blind, he had, was cursed. It was a judgment handed down from God based on someone's disobedience. Have you ever heard the story of the family driving down Route 24 and the tree falls on them and thought to yourself, mm. because it's in there. Have you, I heard the story one time, I remember years ago, of a, a pastor that was doing uh, baptism services. And when he was going to do the baptism, his microphone touched the water and he was electrocuted and died. And you know what, you know what a little voice in the back of my head said? Mm. Must have been doing something. Because this is the way we, we think we relate to God. And it was so common among the ancients, but it still is today. I'll give you another one. In Jesus' day, a tower called the Tower of Siloam had fallen and killed people around town. And everybody was talking about it. And you know what they were saying? Mm. They must have done something. Here's what Jesus says in Luke 13. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Jesus constantly debunks this life under God. In fact, in another story that comes up, there's the rich young ruler that comes along. And to the Jews, if you were rich, you were blessed. You must have found favor with God because you're wealthy. And Jesus goes, are you crazy? Let me explain something. It's actually going to be harder for him to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. You misunderstood the relationship. 
Here's the, the biggest proponents, of, of course, of the life under God are the religious authorities, right? The ones who direct us on how to please these gods. Which, by the way, is a dangerous thing to say when you're the religious authority up front telling people how to relate to God. But these were the biggest proponents of life under God, the religious leaders, because they were making, in Jesus' day, an absolute fortune off of the sacrificial system. You need to sacrifice you need to bring it here. It needs to be a special approved sacrifice. Only the ones that we say are worthy. Oh, by the way, the only place you can buy them are from us that are overinflated prices, and we'll keep a portion of that sacrifice. The Sadducees were loaded. The religious leaders of Jesus today, the teachers of the law as they were known. Jesus made several charges against them. Those that kept propagating a life under God's system. In Matthew 23, he says this about them. He goes, for they preach... But they don't practice. In other words, here's a problem. They're hypocrites. They promote this life under God posture. It's fixated on obeying rules. Rules that they continue this day to add to so that they can build up more and more of the sacrificial system and take bigger and bigger cuts. Hundreds and hundreds of rules with an emphasis on how things look on the outside. This is the false posture of life under God. It's all about what it looks like. Did you, on the outside, give enough? Did you go to church enough? Have you eaten the right kinds of foods? Have you stopped doing the wrong things? But the problem with living in a life under God posture is it has no power to see your heart. Man looks at the outside, but God looks at the heart. Your external behavior might be fantastic, and you might think you're impressing God, and you might think he owes you, but your heart could still be full of hatred and greed and pride and lust and deceit. Here was Jesus' second issue with them. He said, this is what they do. They tie up heavy burdens which are hard to bear with all of their rules, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to move them with their finger. The list of requirements of the thought they were expecting people to obey in ancient Israel at the time, they would, they would build up and each rabbi would have their own rituals, their own rules, and they would be referred, as a, be referred to as a rabbi's yoke. You want to be accepted by God? You want to be loved by God? Here's the rules. If not all of the time, at least most of the time, the people of Israel realized they couldn't live up to it. Have you gotten to a place in your Christian experience where you've realized, I can't live up to all these rules? I can't, I'm not good enough. I still have a roving eye. I still have a heart that chases after the wrong things. I still don't love my wife enough. I still don't care about my kids enough. I'm still caught up in addictions. I haven't given enough money. I haven't done enough stuff. And when you live this life under God, thought process comes over you. No different than 6,000 years ago in Mendham, New Jersey, you have men and women that sit around and go, I'm not sure where I really stand. So let me ask you a real gut check question. I think there's a pretty controversial question. But here's the question. What's your What's your God like? Do you have the same old God and the same old goddesses, but you just call them by different names? 
Do you have the same angry, demanding God and goddesses who are never satisfied, but you just call them by a different name? Have we, here's the real question, have we taken the pagan religions of our past and changed the name of God to Jesus, but never changed the way that we understand or relate to them? Here's what Jesus said. He said, come to me, all you who, are labor, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle in spirit. I'm lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Isn't that what you've been looking for forever? Thinking you could achieve it in some other way? My yoke is easy. My burden is light. So the real question for you to ask yourself is, what is your God like? Is he no different? Is the relationship no different than it's ever been? And you just started calling him Jesus. Have you spent your entire life trying to be good enough to somehow bargain with God in order that you might attain some divine favor? Because if you have, you missed it. You already have divine favor. It's already been given to you. Everything you could ever desire and want from God is already yours. He's not angry with you. all given to you because of what he did with Jesus. Listen, if you find yourself in a place where you are bargaining with God, okay, and we find ourselves in these places, get yourself in a scary, scary place. You start bargaining with God. If you find yourself in a place where you're bargaining with God, if you do this, God, well, I'll do that. God, I've done this. Now you do that. You are bargaining with the wrong God. That's a life under God philosophy, and that is not the entire truth of the Scripture. The entire truth of the Scripture is God is with you. Rest in it. Trust in it. Believe in it. It is good for your soul. And of course this is going to change how you live. Of course this is going to impact your lifestyle. Of course your heart and your desires are going to change in response to this truth. But those things come out of being with God and not in an attempt to gain his favor. Ben, come on up. I'm going to keep closing with this same message for, uh, for the rest of this series. If you want to experience life with God, peace, comfort, rest for your soul, confidence, lack of worry, it's all there for you. Don't pursue it from a life under God, but you have to spend time with him. You have to spend time with him. You have to create space. Nine months ago, when I preached on uh, this topic of our bodies and that, that these are gifts and we should do something about them, I didn't want to be a hypocrite. I didn't want to be a whitewashed tomb, so I started going to the gym. And Joan will tell you, I've been going to the gym four to six times a week for nine months. And the other day, for the first time, somebody said to me, four to six weeks for nine months. The other day, somebody said to me, hey, you've been going to the gym? <laughs> right? If you, this is not about guilt. This is not about trying to please God with getting with him. This is getting what your heart desires. It's available to you if you will just come to him, be with him, spend time with him. 
I have to, you know how hard it is? I have to set apart time to go to the gym. I've gotten into this habit in my mind where I'm constantly thinking over these nine months, when am I going to find the time? How am I going to get there? Joan will tell you. It's like a constant running thing. When, is he gonna, when am I going to get to the gym? We have to get to the place where we start doing that with time with God. No, no, no. I can't do that. I got I to get, get with God. Because there's something there I want and there's something there I need. I close with this great story. Brendan Manning wrote about it. And it just debunks this whole life under God thing that, re- that religion has built up in our lives and that we so many times have approached Jesus thinking that that's how we relate to God. He wrote of a woman that lived in a small town that was having visions of Jesus. She was experiencing life with Jesus. She had been setting aside regular time, regular routine to meet with Jesus. She was experiencing him and not just knowing about him. And so word started to get out to the other women in town that this old woman was having these experiences with Jesus and word got back to the local archbishop. And the archbishop said, well, wait a minute, we can't be having people out here talking about this with God relationship. I need to go debunk this. So he went to meet with the woman and he went to her house and he said, I understand the word on the street is that you're telling people that you're having these visions, these experiences with Jesus. Is that true? And the woman said, yes, that's true. I've been, I've been spending time with God and I've been having these experiences with Jesus. And he said, well, he said, uh, here's what I want you to do then. In an attempt that where he thought he would be able to show her to be the fraud he perceived her to be to all the town, he said, the next time you have one of these visions of Jesus, the next time you, you have this experience with Jesus, I want you to ask him, prove to me that this is happening. I want you to ask him what it is that I confessed when I last went to confession." What did, I, what did I confess? Would you do that? And the old woman said, yes, I'll do that. Archbishop went back. A little bit of time went, went by. She started sharing with friends again that she had had this experience with Jesus. Word gets back to the archbishop. He shows up at her house and he says, I heard that you had another experience with Jesus. And she said, yes, I did. And he said, okay, well, did you ask the question I told you to ask? Remember, I said, ask him what I confessed when I went, last went to confession. And, and the old woman said, I asked him. And he said, okay, well, what did he say? And she grabbed his hand, and she held it tight, and she said, these were his exact words. I don't remember. These were his exact words. I don't remember. For all of you that have spent a lifetime wondering if you're good enough, you've done enough. She grabbed his hand and she said, these were his exact words, I don't remember. Life with God, not 